or in your books called Judgment for Rejection, Part 1. Let's bow in a word of prayer and then start our lesson. Father God, thank you for the beauty of this day. Thank you for the beauty of your creation that I can now see so crystal clear. Thank you for my new eyesight, Lord. I just praise your name for it. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God that we can freely open and and look into to get to know you better through the life of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We just want to give him all the honor and praise and glory that he deserves today. I pray that everything we would say and think this morning in this hour together would truly lift him up and magnify him because he alone deserves all the glory. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would take your work, word and do a work in each one of our hearts. He only knows where we're each coming from in our lives. He only knows what each of us needs to be convicted about or how each of us might need to be comforted. And I just pray that he will do a work in our hearts and that we will all say it was good to have been in the house of the Lord today. And we do pray these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Today, we begin our look at the recorded events and debates, conversations, parables, sermons, uh, prophecies, lessons, and the contention, and there was a lot of contention, that took place on Tuesday of the Passion Week. The Passion Week, in case you don't know, is the final week of Christ's incarnate pre-resurrection life. We call that week the Passion Week. Actually, if we begin the week with Palm Sunday and conclude that week with Resurrection Sunday, then the Passion Week was actually longer than a week because it would be eight days long. Now, in this study, you will come to learn that we have, an assi- we have assigned an appropriate name to each of those eight days of the Passion Week. Um, Palm Sunday was the day when the Lord Jesus officially presented himself seated on the colt of an ass to Israel as her long-awaited promised Messiah. And therefore, we, in this Bible study, have called Palm Sunday the Day of Presentation. The king officially presented himself to Israel. So it was a day of presentation. Monday, which we also have concluded looking at, is what we call in this study the day of demonstration. So we have the day of presentation, Sunday, the day of demonstration, Monday. Because by way of two uncharacteristic first coming acts of judgment, the Lord Jesus demonstrated his authority as the Son of God to judge both Israel's spiritual fruitlessness under her religious leadership, she was not producing fruit. People were not being brought into the kingdom of God. So he demonstrated his authority as the Son of God to judge her for her spiritual fruitlessness. And how did he do that? What did he do? He cursed a fruitless fig tree, which symbolized Israel bearing no fruit. And the second thing he did on Monday was he uh, judged Israel for her spiritual hypocrisy, symbolized by all the corruption that was taking place in the very house of God, in the temple, which Jesus went in on Monday and did what for the second time? Cleansed it, thoroughly cleansed the temple. Now, Tuesday, which we will begin studying today, Tuesday of the Passion Week. And we will be studying the events of Tuesday for the next 
19 lessons in your book. Now that's 19 lessons in your book, so you know we'll probably be here for at least 25 lessons, because I always manage to make one lesson into two somehow or another, but we'll be in Tuesday for a long time. Tuesday is what we call the day of contention, the day of contention. On this busiest recorded day in the Lord's life, this is the, the the one day we have more recorded about in the gospel accounts than any other day in his life. Now, he had had another busy day up in Galilee when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. But this Tuesday of the Passion Week supersedes even that day. This is the busiest recorded day in the Lord's life. And that's why we'll be in it so long. But he not only experienced repeated verbal attacks from all the various groups of his enemies, the religious rulers, during the day... There was a lot of contention he faced by the religious rulers during the day. But on Tuesday evening, he even had to experience contention that came from his own men, the disciples. And that's why we call Tuesday the day of contention. It's interesting to find, and we'll see this as we go through the events of Tuesday, that during this difficult day for the Lord, this day of contention, two special women were brought into his life to bring him great blessing in the midst of all of this contention. And the actions of these two women, we could say, were like refreshingly cool water given to him by the hand of his heavenly father in the midst of a dry, hot wilderness. Contention from all the men that day. <laughs> and the Lord God brought in two special women. And who were these women? Well, the first one was a widow woman who gave all she had for the work of the Lord. What did she give? Two mites. Was, but she gave all that she had for the work of the, of the Lord. The other was a woman named Mary of Bethany who gave the best she had for the worship of the Lord. And what was that? Her expensive spikenard perfume. Both of these events took place on this day of contention. And don't you know the Lord God orchestrated that so that the, his son would have these two blessings? And don't you love it being women, that they were women who brought these blessings to the Lord? Well, our lesson this morning is the first in this two-part study entitled Judgment for Rejection. And you'll understand the reason for this title, Judgment for Rejection, as we progress. I won't take the time to develop that right now. We're going to be looking at three main divisions of our outline. You can see this in your book. We'll be looking at the disciples' amazement, which is over the withered fig tree. <clears throat> then we'll be looking at the rulers' antagonism. That's uh, the religious rulers of Israel challenge the Lord's authority. And then in the longest section of our outline today, we'll be, or not today, but also tomorrow, I mean next week and the week after, probably for the next two weeks, we'll be looking at the third section, the Lord's answer to their challenge about his authority. And the reason that that section is the longest is because in his answer to them, he gives three parables. So that's what's going to slow us up is those three parables. Now, what had the Lord done on Monday, the day of demonstration? Well, on his way, do you remember this? This was, we studied this last year at the end of, um, of our study back in May. But on his way into Jerusalem from Bethany, 
where he had spent the night with his friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he had cursed that fruitless fig tree we just talked about, probably somewhere near the area of Bethpage. Bethany is only two miles from Jerusalem, and Bethpage is a tiny little village. Only It's like in between Bethany and, and Jerusalem, so it's about one mile from Jerusalem. And when they got to Bethpage, which means house of unripe figs, the... Um, <clears throat> The Lord that, you know, he's hungry and he saw this fig tree and he was expecting, because it had many leaves on it, he was fe- uh, expecting a fig to eat or figs to eat and there weren't any. Well, anyway, we won't get into that right now. But then he had gone after that cursing of the fig tree that he and the disciples had gone on into the holy city as he had done <clears throat> on both Sunday and Monday. I'm sorry, I'm getting you confused. I'm talking about what he did on Tuesday now. <laughs> All right, remember he has three entrances into Jerusalem during the Passion Week. The first is on Sunday when he entered on the cult of an ass. It's what we call Palm Sunday, the day of presentation. That is when he presents himself officially to Israel as her king. And then on Monday when he comes into the city, he goes straight to the temple and he cleanses it. He's officially presenting himself to Israel as her priest who has every right to cleanse the temple. And then on Tuesday, which we're looking at now, he goes into the city, and we're going to see him talking all day long. He gives these parables, he debates with the religious rulers, and then he gives two sermons, the Denunciation Sermon and the Olivet Discourse, which is really long. And so that's the day he presents himself as Israel's prophet. So we have him three days, king, priest, and prophet. No man could fill all, fulfill all three of those roles except Jesus Christ, and he did. Anyway, so on Monday he had gone into the temple and he cleansed it of all the greedy <clears throat> corruption going on there. As he had done three years earlier. Remember, he cleansed the temple twice. He cleansed it early in his ministry. Didn't do any good because here he is back three years later. And what's going on? Same old thing. So he had to cleanse it again. <clears throat> and by the way... His cleansing of the temple. Remember last week we talked a a lot about how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. The cleansing of the temple was another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The true Messiah, according to Psalm 69.9, would have a fervent, genuine zeal for the holiness of his father's house. So they should have been looking for a Messiah who would come in and cleanse things that were going on there, all the corruption with the money changers and the animal sellers. Also, in Malachi, chapter 3, the Old Testament prophet Malachi had predicted that, that, first of all, one would come who would herald the Messiah. In other words, one would come to prepare the way before the Messiah. And who was that one? John the Baptist. And the prophet went on to then say, actually to warn Israel, that when she saw this herald, and when he was proclaiming the coming of the Messiah, they should get ready. Israel should get ready. Why? Because shortly after his appearance, the Messiah himself, this is Malachi 3.1, would suddenly come to his temple. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did? First time anybody ever heard about this guy, because he was in obscurity up there in Nazareth of Galilee. First time anybody really heard about him 
was when he suddenly appeared in the temple. And he did just what Malachi said the true Messiah would do. Malachi goes on and says, when the true Messiah comes, he's going to cleanse it. He says he's going to purify it and refine the temple. And that's exactly what he did. Not amazing to us, is it? We expect that, but they should have been looking for someone who would come and do just what he did, cleanse the temple. Well, continuing with the events of Monday, after a visit by some Greeks, some further prophecies by the Lord Jesus regarding his upcoming death and his glorification, and then a a prayer to his Father to glorify his name, and then uh, a response from God himself in heaven. God spoke from heaven for the third time. After all of that, what had happened? Well, the Lord and his men had retired back to Bethany, where they spent every night, almost every night, of the Passion Week. They don't spend the last night there. You know, the night when they're in the upper room, they go to the Mount of Olives, and they spend spend the last night in the uh, Mount of Olives. But every other night, they would go back to, to, to the house of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so, now we're beginning Tuesday. On the following Tuesday morning, they get up early, as the Lord always did, and he's going to make his return trip to Jerusalem. And on the way, they again pass through Bethpage, and they see, or Peter is the first one apparently to see, the, uh, the fig tree that the Lord had cursed on the previous Monday morning. And Peter called attention to the fact that the tree had already withered and died. You know, not even a diseased or a purposely salted tree would die quite that quickly. But it was already just, you know, completely withered and dead. So if you look with me now at the first part of our outline, the disciples' amazement, I'm going to read Mark 11, verses 20 to 26. And this account, by the way, is also found over in Matthew, but it's much briefer, so I'm going to use Mark's account of this. All right, Mark 11, starting at verse 20. And in the morning, and if you want to write in your Bible, you can put Tuesday there. In the morning, Tuesday. As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And if you want a reference, I threw a little arrow in my Bible from verse 20 over to verse 13, because that's on Monday when they first saw that fig tree. All right, so they see the same fig tree. And Peter... Calling to remembrance, saith unto him, unto the Lord, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursedest is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, and there he is on the Mount of Olives, so he may well have been pointing to the Mount of Olives, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have ought against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. All right, we stop right there. Okay, 
We notice from not Mark's account, but over in Matthew's account of this, Matthew 21, 20, that the condition of the fig tree was observed by all of the disciples. But, you know, you know, Peter, he had to be the one that spoke up. Uh, the previous day, as they passed through that little village of Bethpage, and who can remember what else happened in Bethpage? I just thought of this. Trivia time. Remember, that's where the Lord got the little donkey. Very good, Virginia. The donkey and the donkey's mother was in Bethpage. All right, so the previous day, Monday morning, that fig tree had been conspicuous because of its abundance of leaves. But now the very same tree was equally conspicuous because of its totally blighted state. It was dried up from the roots, it tells us. That means that the death of the tree had spread upward from the roots through the entire tree. The sight of that pitiful-looking tree caused Peter to remember what the Lord had done the previous day when he had cursed the tree, saying, and this is in verse 14, if you look at that, the Lord had said to the tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And Peter, of course, knowing Peter, felt that it was his duty to call the Lord's attention to the tree, which probably tells us that the Lord was not looking at the tree and the Lord was maybe walking ahead of his men. I don't know, but he, was, he had his thoughts and focus on something else. But he didn't need to be told by Peter that the tree had withered and died because the Lord knew it was dead the minute he cursed it. Anyway, the condition of the tree did amaze the disciples. And this may be because Jesus had declared that it would forever be fruitless. Isn't that what he said? No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. He had declared it would be fruitless, but now it was totally, what? Lifeless. Matthew tells us, and this is over in Matthew 21, 20, that the disciples marveled at the condition of the tree and made the statement, how soon is the fig tree withered away? Well, in response to the marveling of his men, Jesus took the opportunity, as he always does, to teach them. And what he teaches them is about having faith in God. He says, look at verse 22, have faith in God. Now, you don't see this, but in the Greek, it, the, the, the word have faith, which, by the way, is a command, isn't it? is given in the present imperative tense, which means that he was giving them a command to keep on having faith in God. He was, his reply actually was a gentle rebuke for their lack of faith in the power of his word. You know, they should not have been amazed. They should not have been marveling to see that the tree had, with, had withered away so soon um, or that it had even withered away. They should not have marveled over its condition. I mean, everything Jesus did, didn't he do instantly when he said, you know, be cleansed or have your sight? I can really identify with the blind man now. <laughs> There's one thing I know. I was blind and now I see. Wow. But it was always instantaneous. Almost always. There's one exception. Um, so they shouldn't have been surprised the tree was, you know, withered like this. And they should have been expecting to see it that way. And rather, they should, they should have marveled if it had not been withered. That's what should have caused them to marvel if they walked by the fig tree and it wasn't withered. They had certainly had enough previous examples of the immediate power of the Lord Jesus' spoken word. 
hadn't they? Just think of some of the things that they had witnessed over the past three years. For example, when he said, peace be still, and suddenly the storm was over. Or when he would say, arise and walk, and someone would be able to get up and start walking. Or, come out, thou unclean spirit. Or, little girl, arise, Jairus' daughter arose from the dead. Be thou cleansed to the lepers, and instantly their skin would be like newborn babies. Or, uh, Lazarus, come forth, and out he came. So they had a, a lot of examples of the power of his word. And so you would think that by now, after three years of walking with the Lord Jesus, that their faith would be like solid rock, wouldn't you? But it wasn't. And that just goes to show, you know, a miracle, if you're, if you're just going by miracles, you're going to be on a roller coaster. Because when you, when you see a miracle, you're on the, on the top, the mountain, and then after a little while, the miracle fades from your, and you want another miracle, don't you? And it's just up and down, up and down. So they'd, they'd see one of his miracles, and they say, oh, he is, he truly is the Christ. And, and then they'd be walking in the valley for a while, and they'd get despondent. So their faith was not yet solid, but uh, it was port important. It was important that they have faith in the power of his words because they're going to desperately need this faith, solid rock faith in the future, especially in his absence. He's going to leave them very shortly. And uh, there would be many mountains that would loom before them, many trials, many tribulations, many testings, and uh, that they would need to cast into the sea. They'd have to be able to take those mountains and cast them into the sea. And the Lord is obviously speaking figuratively here because otherwise no one in the whole universe has ever had enough faith because no one has ever taken a mountain and cast it into the sea, including him, right? So he's talking figuratively here. There would be many, many occasions in the days and in the years ahead for the disciples to doubt the words that Jesus had spoken to them which at first they would do. They would doubt his words, and their doubts would especially get the worst of them when they would see him arrested in a couple more nights and then crucified and buried. They did not cast the mountainous problem of his death into the sea by reminding one another of his past promises to them, such as, don't worry, guys. Yes, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried, but on the third day, I will rise again. He told them that over and over again, but they didn't remind each other of that. They didn't cast the mountain into the sea. They didn't remember when he promised them he would return in John chapter 14 and that he would send them the comforter and that they would reign with him on 12 thrones ruling over the tribes of Israel. Rather, their doubts about his word, cast them into the sea, the sea of despair and the sea of depression, the sea of despondency, thinking that all they had thought about him was not true after all. Their faith wavered, didn't it? And do you know what? Wavering faith never, ever overcomes mountains. 
it's very important to have rock-solid, unwavering faith and confidence in what? The Word of God, the promises of God. Now, the disciples, as we know, did, they did eventually become mountain-moving men because they did gain steadfast, undoubting, unwavering confidence in God, God, uh, confidence not only in God's power, you know, all things are possible with God, and in God's truth. But um, above all, above all else, they, they got to the point that regardless of what it cost them personally, they became men who sought to do God's will with the single-minded desire that he, God, would get the glory in and through them. Regardless of what it cost them, they became single-focused men to give God the glory with their lives. And of course, as the Lord reminded them in verses 25 and 26 here about forgiveness, another condition to be able to achieve this kind of, um, of faith would be that they would need to do a lot of forgiving. And they would have to be able to forgive others. And just think about the disciples. They would have a lot of forgiving to do. They would need to forgive one another for all the fussing and fighting that had gone on among them about, you know, who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they would need to forgive Judas Iscariot. Now, even though Judas would be dead, they would need to forgive him and not hold bitterness in their hearts against him. You know, if you have a grudge against somebody and they're dead and gone, you still need to forgive that one because the bitterness is just going to build up in, in your heart. A root of bitterness, the only one it hurts is the person with the root of bitterness. So they would have to forgive uh, Judas. They would need to forgive the Jews who were responsible, first and foremost, for Jesus' death. And they would need to forgive the Romans, who also had a part in Jesus' death. They would need to forgive those who even persecuted them. And they would be persecuted, every one of the disciples. And they would need to forgive those who would kill their friends, because some of their friends would die for being Christians. And some of their family members would be killed for being Christians. John would have to forgive those who killed his brother James right? And they would need to forgive those who even martyred them because all of them except for John was martyred. Uh, and they'd have to be like Stephen. What did Stephen say as they were martyring him, as they were stoning him to death? Father, forgive them. Same thing the Lord had said, forgive them for they know not what they do. They would have to forgive a young man named Saul, who went about persecuting and killing Christians. At first they had a little trouble with that, didn't they? But they were able to forgive Saul for his past life. Saul became the apostle Paul. They would need to forgive themselves. Here's one where a lot of us have trouble with. Maybe, you know, some of us can forgive other people, but we can't forgive ourselves. But they would need to forgive their, themselves for the mistakes that they had made when they just didn't get it when they had not understood all the Lord had been trying to tell them, when they treated people badly, such as when they sent those parents away with their young children. They just wanted to bring the young children to Jesus, and they said, Lord, send them away. Or when they wanted to call lightning down from heaven and crispy fry that whole town of Samaritans, make them into crispy critters. That's, that was terrible. There were old people and young children in that town. They said, call down lightning and strike them all. They would need to rebuke themselves for having rebuked a man who was casting out demons in the name of the Lord, but he wasn't one of their little clique. 
You know, he wasn't in their little group. They would have to forgive themselves for, for competing over the seats of honor in the kingdom of heaven, you know, wanting to sit on the Lord's right and left hand. They would need to forgive themselves for not having washed the Lord's feet when they had had the opportunity to do so. And instead, what happened? He wound up washing their feet. They would need to forgive themselves for criticizing Mary. They joined in with Judas and criticized Mary of Bethany for anointing the Lord's feet with her expensive perfume. And they would need to forget themselves, forgive themselves for doubting. Doubting, doubting, doubting. Doubting the words of Jesus and trying to have their will supersede his will. And falling asleep when he had asked them to watch and pray with him. And for scattering from him when he was arrested and for denying even knowing him. Who did that? Peter. Peter had to forgive himself for that. Um, and for doubting the truth of his resurrection as reported to them by some women. Oh, those women, they're just, you, you know, women. You can't believe what they say. And so they didn't believe the women when they came back and said, the Lord isn't there. <laughs> He's risen, as he said. And for doubting the truth of his resurrection, even when it was reported by all of the other apostles. And who did that? Thomas. Thomas not only didn't believe the report from the women, but he didn't believe the report from the other disciples. And they would need to forgive themselves for doubting the power of Jesus and the power of God and doubting the perfect plan of God, which supersedes the events and all the sadnesses of this present life. You know, when you, when you really have rock-solid faith in the promises of God and in the perfect plan of God, you know, that just, that's mountain-moving faith. Because then when you see the end and you know that eventually all is going to be well, doesn't that enable you to cast all the mountains that loom ahead of you into the sea and just stay focused on eternity? And you can have unwavering faith. You can have mountain-moving faith. And it, you can have, it can supersede all the sadnesses, all the trials of this life. And this life is full of a lot of sadnesses, a lot of tears. But you can, in the midst of them, have that peace that passes all understanding. Well, once, once the disciples, or once any of us, for that matter, once they got to the point where their faith in God, which was built upon their faith in his word, remember, not his miracles, but his word. His miracles only proved the authenticity of his word. Um, so anyway, where was it? Once they got to the point where they, they had faith in God, built on his word, and they got to the point where all they desired was his will to be done. Then they got to the point that um, they understood that his will is ultimately far better than their will and their ways. And far wiser than their will and their ways. And they, they got to the point where they knew that whatever he did in their lives was for their own ultimate good. What was he doing? Even when they were persecuted, even when they were martyred, what was he doing? He was making them into his image. He was transforming them. Remember, we talked last week about from glory to glory. The best thing that ever happened to them was when they were martyred because then they were instantly in the presence of the one they loved so much and they were like him because they were glorified. 
And uh, so they knew, they got to the point where they knew everything was for their own ultimate good and for his glory, the Lord's glory. And they could then, with that kind of understanding and perspective on life and eternity, they could then easily forgive others because they realized how much God in Christ had forgiven them. And uh, so therefore they could say to all the mountains in their lives, and this is what we need to pray about, you know, Lord, make me be able to say to all those mountains that come into my life, be thou removed and be cast into the sea. And what did Jesus say? It shall be done. Look at verse 21. Be thou removed and be cast into the sea and it shall be done. One of my commentators named Ivor Powell, he says this in his uh, commentary on this passage. He said, if in simple faith I can look at my mountainous problems and banish them from my mind. In other words, you know, you don't forget them. You know they're there, but you, you, you look down the road to eternity. That surely would be in keeping with the promise of Christ here in this verse 21. If I truly believe that God will never fail, never forsake me, whatever my circumstances might be, then I can enjoy peace that passes understanding. And that is so true. Now, there is a whole lot more that I could say on this passage, but it's already been said. If you, We had a lesson, I think it was number 79. If you go back to one of the previous books, it was called uh, Moving Mountains in the Valley. We've already talked, and when we talked about the Lord's Prayer, we talked about forgiving one another. So there are other lessons that we really need to get on, but if you're interested more in this subject, you can see me later. We need to move on and look at the scene as Jesus entered into Jerusalem on this Tuesday morning. So if you'll flip over now to Matthew, Matthew 21, let's look at, let's see, Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he was come into the temple, here again, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you could put Tuesday by that verse. And when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said... By what authority dost thou these things, doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Okay, when Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a small donkey two days earlier, amidst the messianic hails of the massive crowds of palm-waving people, the religious rulers of Israel, these same guys, these chief priests and elders, and also um, Mark tells us that scribes were also included here, um, they tried to get Jesus, remember, to silence the crowds. Don't let them hail you as the king of Israel. Don't let them hail you as, as the son of David. Tell them to be quiet. But he wouldn't do it, would he? What did he say to them? He said, if the people had held their peace, the very stones of the city would immediately cry out. That was in Luke 19.40. And this made the religious rulers furious. Um, but they couldn't do anything about it because of his popularity with the massive Passover pilgrims. There were millions of people in Israel to celebrate the Passover, I mean in Jerusalem. And so the hands of the religious rulers were tied. They really wanted to destroy Jesus, but they couldn't because of the crowds. Well, that had been Sunday. Then on Monday, when he had arrived in Jerusalem, you know, we've talked about it, he went straight to the temple, 
and uh, there he single-handedly threw out all of those who, under the official permission of the two co-reigning corrupt high priests of Israel, had turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Single-handedly, he cleansed it. And once again, the religious false shepherds of Israel had stood by in complete impotence. They didn't like what they saw him doing to their pocketbooks, but they, they couldn't do a thing. They couldn't lift a finger. I don't, I mean, there was just something about him that nobody dared to even approach him. And they were apparently even speechless because we don't hear them say anything on that day about it. They wanted to destroy him. We're told that in Luke 19, verses 47 and 48. But they couldn't find a way to do it because it says this. Because all the people were very attentive to hear him. Again, they had to stand by and watch all this. They... They were impotent to do anything about it because of their fear of the people. So they're furious. This Now, on Monday night, those two events had happened on Sunday and Monday. And Monday night, they probably had an all-night caucus. They had a, a meeting. And they, they tried to figure out a, a means by which they might publicly discredit Jesus with the people so that they could then kill him. He was undermining their influence. And his ministry was seriously challenging their authority over the people. It had gotten to the point where he simply could not be ignored anymore. And obviously, he just wasn't going to vanish. He wasn't going to go away. And so something had to be done. And in their thinking, it had to be done quickly. So as we're going to see as we progress through the next couple weeks, they devised four... I always get my numbers wrong. Four different trick questions. They thought they were trick questions. Um, and these questions come to the Lord. They're, they're posed by four different groups of the religious leaders. All on this day, Tuesday, the day of contention. And these questions are their attempt to ensnare him by his answer and get him discredited before the people so that they can destroy him. The questions in order have to do with his authority. We just read the first question, you know, who gave you the authority to do these things? So the first question is about his authority. Then the second question is about paying tribute money to who? Caesar, to Rome. The third question has to do, it's by the Sadducees, who don't believe in the doctrine of resurrection, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. A woman, they make up this you know, idea about a woman with seven husbands, whose husband is going to be her husband in, in the resurrection. And then the fourth question has to do with the, the nature of the first commandment. So as he was in the temple on Tuesday morning, teaching those people who were interested in hearing what he had to say, a selected delegation of each of the three groups who composed the uh, Sanhedrin Council, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people. Now, scribes isn't in Matthew, but Mark and Luke tell us there were scribes also. They interrupted him. He's teaching the people, and they interrupt him with this very unfriendly question. Actually, two questions. By what authority doest thou these things? Now, what do you think these things has... A reference to, well, probably what you did on Palm Sunday and what you did yesterday on Monday, cleansing the temple. And second question, and who gave thee this authority? 
they were asking for his credentials, the credentials that authorized him to do these things. And really, I think they use the term these things to purposely be vague. They didn't say what you did on Sunday and what you did on Monday. with it, Because these things really could be a reference to his entire ministry. Who gives you authority for your entire ministry? Which, from their point of view, had been constantly in conflict with the lawful authority both, uh, authority, both in Galilee and down there in Jerusalem. So, in effect, they're asking Jesus, who authorized you to interfere with life, the status quo of life here in Israel? Who authorized you to go around healing people on the Sabbath? Who authorized you to make up your own interpretations of the Mosaic law? Who authorized you to tell people that their sins are forgiven? And who told you that you could interfere with normal business procedures here in the temple? We're in charge here. We're the ones who give people the authority to do what they, what they can do and what they can't do. And we certainly never gave you permission to take the law into your own hands. That's what they're saying. Their plan, their evil plan was that he would respond to their questions as he usually did by saying that he either worked in his own authority or he worked in the authority of his father, God, his father. And in either case, they would then publicly accuse him of blasphemy for making himself equal with God. And then they would prompt the crowd. Now, they wouldn't pick up the stones themselves because the crowd would get mad at them if they stoned Jesus. But they would, they would instigate the crowd. They would say, oh, he's committed blasphemy, and they would tear their robes, and they would act so pious. And the crowd, some in the crowd, with that many people, you know, somebody would bend over and pick up a stone, and they would stone Jesus to death. However, as always, these religious rulers underestimated who it was that they were dealing with. They were trying to ensnare one who was indeed equal with God. And you cannot trick... And you cannot try to debate God because you will always come out the loser, always, as they'll find out. And by the way, the Lord wasn't under obligation to answer their question because his works alone, all of his miracles, and even single-handedly cleansing the temple, which is what Psalm 69 and Malachi said the true Messiah would do, but his works alone had been sufficient justification for any claim that he made, as had been his entire sinless life. Remember when he said, who of you can convict me of any sin? And no one could say a word other than, oh, you heal people on the Sabbath and you make yourself equal with God. Those weren't sins, were they? Because he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He could do whatever he wanted and he was equal with God. And, of course, you know, his, his messianic ancestral lineage, as we looked at last week, and all of his other perfect fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies already were sufficient justification for the claim that he made, that he did his works in the authority of God his Father. But he wasn't going to just ignore their question. He could have. He had every right to do that, but he wasn't because his disciples were there and the crowd of people were there, and they might have misunderstood his silence if he didn't answer these religious rulers. So as he did so much of the time, Jesus replied to the question about his authority with a counter-question of his own. Wasn't he a master at doing that? They'd ask a question, he'd ask back a question. 
He told them that he would not answer their question until they told him where John the Baptist received his authority. Did he receive, did John receive his authority from God or from men? So let's look at his answer. Actually, the Lord's answer to their challenge regarding his authority is going to extend all the way to Matthew 22, 14. He's going to, this is going to be a long answer to that question. And uh, as we're going to see, he doesn't answer their question outright in a way that would please them. Because if he just answered their question by saying, my, I get my authority from my Father in heaven, they would accuse him of blasphemy and that would be the end. Um, but he does answer their question. He doesn't do it the way they wanted him to do it. He does it very cleverly by using John the Baptist and by using parables. He, he not only tells them quite clearly through these things that he is God's son, but he also, and he's such a master, he also actually gets them to condemn themselves. Now that's a master debater, isn't it? He gets them to condemn themselves. It's, it's just fascinating to watch this. But let's begin. Where are you? Are you in Matthew 21? Did I tell you? Okay, let's look at verses 24 to 27. 24 to 27. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, if you answer this one question, he says, I in likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John... Whence was it, from heaven or of men? That's his question. And, hmm, they reasoned with themselves saying, uh-oh, we're in trouble. If we shall say from heaven, he will say unto us, why did ye not then believe him? Why didn't you believe John the Baptist? But if we shall say of men, we fear the people. For all hold John as a prophet. And so what do they do? They're so smart. They're so intelligent. They come up with a third option. They answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. We don't know. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. All right, when Jesus asked this august group of prestigious men about the baptism of John, if it was from heaven or if it was of men, it was a reference really to John the Baptist's entire ministry. Baptism was merely the distinguishing feature of his ministry. So Jesus' question, really, if you think about his question about John, was implying that his authority, the Lord's authority, stemmed from the same source as that of John's. So you see, their evaluation of the Baptist's authority was the test that would reveal their qualification to evaluate his own authority. The men were astute enough. I mean, they weren't dummies. They always come across looking like dummies when they come up against Jesus. But they were astute enough to immediately recognize that Jesus had turned the tables totally on them and put them between a rock and a hard place. Verse 25 tells us that they had to reason within themselves or among themselves. I don't know if they got in a little huddle and talked about what they were going to say or if every one of them was individually thinking what, how they were going to respond. But when they tested 
all the all the possible answers they came up with the fact that there were only two answers to his question and either way they knew they were in trouble to this point now this is interesting to this point now john the baptist is dead he's been dead for a while but to this point the sanhedrin council the religious rulers of of israel had successfully managed to avoid committing themselves one way or another to the validity of john the baptist's ministry and teaching they never had come out yet and said john the baptist was a true prophet of god and they had never come out and said that he wasn't a true prophet they had just remained silent about the whole thing but now in the midst of masses of pilgrim passover pilgrims who had loved john all the people of israel it says over in the other accounts all the people had loved john and had believed that he absolutely was a true prophet of god so now their little trick to trap Jesus, you see, had been turned right back on them. If they were to now make a public declaration that John the Baptist's authority had been from heaven, then what would Jesus immediately ask them in return? He would say to them, then why didn't you believe John's message? And they didn't. They even admit it here. They know they didn't believe John's message, and we have proof of it in other scripture references. They would say, you know, if it was from heaven, then why didn't you submit yourselves to John's message? What was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, um, and then he would also ask them why they didn't believe John's message about himself, because who had John pointed to and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sins of the world? Him, Jesus. So he'd say, if they said, well, John got his authority from heaven, he'd say, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you submit to his message and repent? And why don't you believe that I am the Messiah? Because John said that I was. And he also might then ask them why they had allowed Herod Antipas to imprison uh, John the Baptist and, and then kill him, behead him. Herod, Herod was a weak man. And he likely would have released John the Baptist from prison if the religious rulers of Israel had put up a big stink about all of it. Because he wouldn't have wanted Rome to hear about an uprising within the area of his jurisdiction. They could have managed to get Herod to release John from prison. But you know what? They liked having John in prison. They wanted to shut him up, so they didn't do a thing about it. And they allowed, they actually allowed him to be killed. So that's what would happen if they said that his ministry was from heaven. On the other hand, if the chief priests and scribes and elders of the people now said that John's authority was only of men, of man, and not of God, then their influence over the people would be at even greater risk. Because the people, as I said, the people of Israel loved John the Baptist and truly did acknowledge him as a prophet, an authentic prophet of God. In fact, if these religious rulers had given such a response in this public setting that John the Baptist's ministry was only of men, 
you know, that he came up with it even of himself. Do you know what might have happened? The people might have picked up stones, yes, but they would have cast them at the religious rulers. And they knew it. And that's why over in Luke, I didn't take you to Luke, but in Luke 20, verse 6, it says this. In their, as they're reasoning in their minds how to answer Jesus, it says, But if we shall say from men, all the people will stone us. For they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So you see, they're in a dilemma, aren't they? Now, there was a third alternative. They could have, and and this is interesting because this is actually the answer that they had given with regard to Jesus' ministry and his power. Now, they could have answered and said that John's authority came from Beelzebub. From Satan. Isn't that what they had said of Jesus when he did his miracles? They said, oh, you're getting your authority and your power from Satan, Beelzebub. That's in Matthew 12, 24. But what do you think would have happened in this setting if they had said that John the Baptist's ministry and authority was from Satan? Not, would have, not good for them. That would not have been good. That would have been so unacceptable that they immediately would have been stoned to death. So... There was a fourth response, and that's what we get. (laughs) In a very disgraceful answer of expediency, they they would have made good politicians, wouldn't they? Uh, By which, really, by by their answer here, the members of the Sanhedrin automatically disqualified themselves to be the judges of of Jesus' authority. They disqualified themselves to be his judges by their answer. Because all they said was, we cannot tell, Hmm, we don't know where John the Baptist got his authority. So they had been caught in their own hypocrisy, and their answer made them look ridiculous. And their failure to answer Jesus' question then released him from his promise to answer their question. He said, I'll answer your question if you answer this one about John. So now he's released He doesn't have to answer their question. So he said, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Verse 27. And then he continued to speak and he asked them yet another question. He says, but what think ye? And then he went on to give three parables in which he actually answers in an indirect manner. He answers their question about the source of his authority, but not in a way that they can accuse him of blasphemy. Because when you speak in parables, you know, you can't say, aha. (laughs) You see, although he knew that his challengers were not really interested in where he got his authority, they didn't care where he got his authority. I think most of them secretly believed he did get his authority from God, just like they secretly did believe John was a true prophet. But they didn't really care. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind is made up. Um, but he, he, he knew that they didn't care about the truth. They, he knew that they only wanted to, um, to use something to kill him. But there were others in the crowd, like his own men and other people. And you and I, today, studying this, who did need to hear his answer to the question, where did he get his authority? And so he does answer the question. And he also goes on to answer a couple other que- questions. He answers a question... Who is a true son of the kingdom? And he answers another question. How can true sonship be tested? How can you know a true child of the king? 
And how can that be tested? How can you know that somebody truly is saved? The religious rulers saw no need for repentance, as John had preached, because they viewed themselves as already being the sons of the kingdom, didn't they? Just by the fact that they were the sons of Abraham and because they were such pious men. So they figured if anybody didn't need to worry about getting into the kingdom, it was them. Uh, So by way of the parable of the two sons, which is only found here in Matthew, he told them how wrong they were, as he would further do in the two parables that follow. But now for just the rest of our study this morning, we're going to look at this parable of the two sons. So let's read it together. And it is found in verses 28 to 32. Verse 28, he says, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered, that's the first son, answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he, the father, came to the second son and said likewise. In other words, he said to the second son, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he, the second son, answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Now Jesus asks the religious rulers a question. That's the parable, two short verses. Now he asks them a question. Whither of them twain? I'm glad we don't talk like that anymore. In other words, which of the two (laughs) did the will of his father? And they, the, the religious rulers, answered him correctly. They said, the first, the first son did the will of his father. And Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, here he goes right back to talking about John. They wouldn't answer his question about John, but he's going to answer the question about John. For John, meaning the Baptist, came unto you in what? The way of righteousness. So where did John get his authority? From heaven. He came in the way of righteousness. And ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, when you saw the publicans and harlots' lives being transformed, you repented not afterward that ye might believe him. All right, oftentimes the best way to get a person to see his or her own sin is to show it to him or her in the actions of other people. Isn't it amazing? We can see the sins in other people. Better we can see our own sins, you know. We have a beam in our own eye and we want to take the speck out of somebody else's. But the Lord frequently did this, and he did it often by using parables. And that's what he did. It's kind of like Nathan, the prophet, did with David over David's sin with Bathsheba. You know, Nathan gave this little story about someone else, and David could see how wrong the other guy had been. And then Nathan pointed his finger and said, Thou art the man. You're the one I'm really talking about. It's a clever way to get around, you know. Sometimes people don't listen when you say, you're a sinner. You're no good sinner. You shouldn't be doing that. But when you tell a story about someone else, aren't they easy, so quick to to condemn someone else? He did this. He did this in this parable of the two sons. And he does it also in the parable we'll look at next week, the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Uh, For example, he, he gets them to condemn themselves. Look at what I just read in verse 31. They answered him correctly, didn't they? 
They said the first. They knew the first son was the right son. So really they're condemning themselves because they're the second son. They're represented by the second son. They said, you know, yes, we'll serve you, Lord, but they never really did serve. And then look at verse 41. After he gives the second parable, it says, they say unto him, he asks them a question and he says, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen. You know who they're condemning them? They're, they're themselves because they're the wicked husbandmen in that in the parable. And they saw it in the others, but they couldn't see it in them. And they even go on to prophesy and say, well, he needs to give his vineyard to someone else, which he did. He gave it to the church temporarily, you know. And then look at verse 45. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they finally really got it. They perceived that he spake of them. (laughs) They got it. He was pointing the finger at them. All right, the Lord's simple story here in this parable is about a father who had two sons. And the father also owned a vineyard. Because he was the father, he had authority over his sons, and he had every right to tell his boys to go and work in his, in his vineyard. In the matter of our relationship with God, we are nothing above sons at best, okay? And that means that God, as the Father, has authority over us. And his word, therefore, is to be our command. We don't have an option. I know when my dad, I had a very strict dad, a Greek father, oh my goodness. You don't know strict until you live in the house of a Greek father who was raised with five sisters and the only son. But anyway, when he said something, you didn't question, you never questioned it. You did it immediately or else. Uh, There was no option. (laughs) And same with us. It should be with God. We do not have the option of whether we want to obey his commands. We obey them or else we are guilty of disobedience and get punished for that disobedience, chastened or punished eternally, whichever the case may be. The problem, however, with mankind is that mankind does not want to uh, bow to heavenly authority. Men don't like the commands of God, and they treat them with disdain because Man wants to run his own life, right? Find this with children. They don't want to be told what to do because we, you know, we've inherited the sin nature, so we're just born that way. We don't like to be, we don't like authority. We don't like somebody telling us how to do this and that. Mankind doesn't like someone to run his life because uh, he wants to run it his own way. He doesn't want God to interfere. Anyway, the father had every right to make these commands of his sons. And so he goes to his first son. Notice The father makes the first move. The son doesn't come to the father and say, Oh, I would like to work in your vineyard today, Dad. No, the father goes to the son, which is all, you know, the Lord God always makes the first move. He goes to his son and he says, Son, go work in my, today, in my vineyard. Do you notice the urgency in the command? When does he want the son to go? Tomorrow? Next year? No. Son, go work today. We must work in the Father's vineyard. When? Today, while it is day, for the night cometh when no man can work. John 9, 4. Well, the first son's response to his father's command was a point-blank refusal. He said what? I will not. 
There were no excuses given by the son. There was no apologies made. You know, I'm sorry, Dad, I can't. I've got a previous appointment. Nothing. Just a bold and unashamed refusal of the son to obey his father. But afterward, he repented and he went and did work that day in his father's vineyard. The refusal, you see, the refusal of the son to work was not permanent, was it? Sometime later, he was convicted, kind of like the uh, prodigal son. At some point, he was convicted of his wrong conduct, and he repented of his evil, and he went to work in his father's vineyard. There was genuine evidence of his repentance, wasn't there? The evidence was in the performance. He actually did get up and walk to the vineyard and work. A person can confess his sins openly. And we see this so often, don't we? Someone can make a profession of faith in Christ. They can confess their sins openly and say that they are repenting. But the proof will be in what follows that confession, right? Right. Faith without works is dead. Does, he, does that one who confesses faith actually go and work in the father's vineyard? If this son here, this first son, if he only repented of his willful disobedience and didn't go to work in his father, you know, he said, oh, I shouldn't have said that to dad. I shouldn't have said, you know, he should have gotten a spanking, right? But um, back in those days, it really would have been grounds for stoning. But uh, if he later on the day, he said, I shouldn't have said that. Well, that was wrong. I repent. But he never got up and went and worked in the field. What would that show? It still would show not genuine repentance. Genuine repentance has evidence in performance. Many claim to be saved. You know, when I was just about to go out of it, and I was asking those nurses, do you know Jesus? Do you know? I saw every one of them. Last thing I saw was all going like this. Now, I don't know. Maybe they are. I hope they are. But you could go out there. A lot of people profess to be saved. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, But it is their works and their obedience that give the real evidence of their salvation. Ye shall know them by their fruits. What's the problem with that fruitless fig tree? It just had a profession. It just had green leaves. It had no fruit. Well, the father also went to his second son. Again, he made the first move. And he said the same thing to the second son. Son, go work today in my vineyard. To which the second son, oh, you all say, oh, he's such a good boy. If only my other son was like him. You know, like the older son in the story of the prodigal. He says, I go, sir. I mean, he's even polite about it. Maybe even saluted dad. I go, sir. Yes, sir. The problem with his response, which sounds so good at first, is that it was never backed up with action. Yes, dad, I'll go. And what did he do? He sat there with the remote in his hand all the rest of the day and never got out of the couch. (laughs) You see, his I go was um, never backed up with action. So his promise to go was only hypocritical, wasn't it? Because he said one thing, and yet he did another. It was really a lie. He probably had no intention of going. He just got his father off of his back for a while. Yeah, I'll go, Dad. But he, he was lying. His lips spoke obedience, 
But his life spoke disobedience. You see a lot of people like this? Yes. I love Jesus with all my heart, soul, and mind and strength. And yet, they're shacking up with somebody or they're out there living a wicked lifestyle. Whatever. Their life doesn't back up their lips. All talk and no walk, right? There was a contradiction between his word and his work, his promise and his performance. Now, this was a very short, simple parable. Even a child could understand this parable, right? I could explain this parable to my little four-year-old and probably my little three-year-old grandchildren, child, son, daughter, right? You could, too. It's very simple. And... um, Short and simple. But Jesus immediately followed up by asking the religious rulers which of the two sons did his father's will. And, of course, they only had, there could only be one right answer. They'd already looked pretty ridiculous. They didn't want to make themselves look even more ridiculous. So they gave the only correct answer, and they said the first. The one who said he wouldn't go, but did go. He repented and he did go. And in answering correctly, they actually condemned themselves. The Lord then gave the one-two punch by applying the parable to them. And he said, when he said verily, remember when he says verily, it means listen, listen up. Of a truth, I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Whoa. <laughs> he didn't pull any punches. He wasn't afraid of them one single bit. He compared, what he was doing here, was comparing the publicans and the harlots to the first son. The son who said, I won't go, but repented and did go. It was the publicans and the harlots who the Jews, these religious uppity-uppers, believed were the scum of society. I mean, they didn't... Even if they did repent, they shouldn't even deserve the kingdom of heaven. That was their mindset about publicans, tax collectors, and harlots. Uh, Under no circumstances should they deserve salvation. At first, such people as publicans, Matthew, Zacchaeus, and harlots, you know, we've had several harlots in here who've gotten saved, they, they would just deliberately disobey God, right? I won't obey God. I'm going to live this kind of lifestyle. And they said no to his commandments. But when John the Baptist came along, the first true prophet of God in some 400 years, Israel had not heard from a true prophet since Malachi. And so when John comes along and he preached repentance, who were some of the first ones to believe his message and be baptized with his baptism of repentance? People like the tax collectors and the harlots who understood and acknowledged the fact that, yes, they were disobedient servants. They had said no to God. I won't go. I won't work in your vineyard. But because they repented, they became the ones who then accepted Jesus. When he came along, and they, therefore, would enter the kingdom of God. On the other hand, the proud religious rulers, who claimed that they already lived their lives in obedience to God, they were the ones who they would say, you know, we always say, yes, sir, to God. We'll work in your vineyard. Uh, they thought that they were already living in obedience, so that they, di- they didn't need to repent. And they didn't like John. 
Because John told them, who told you, you brood of vipers, that you need to repent? They didn't like him because they, he told them the truth about themselves. And so uh, they, in giving this parable, the Lord was attempting, really, to still get their attention. He was still trying to get their attention so that they could get saved. And I, I didn't notice this until one of the commentators pointed it out. But any of them, at this point, still could have repented and entered into the kingdom of God because he said that harlots and publicans enter into the kingdom before you. He could have said, instead of you. But he said, before you. He's leaving the door of salvation open to them. Any one of them could have still repented and been saved. So in this parable, Jesus was teaching that a profession of obedience does not make a person a son of God. True sonship is tested by obedience, not by a verbal profession. The Pharisees, the scribes, and all the other religious rulers claimed to be the sons of God, but they did not obey the words of God. And uh, those words had come, of course, first through John the Baptist and then um, through his very son, Jesus. And they didn't believe either one. So... Isn't it amazing how clever the Lord Jesus is in, in how he just worked this whole little issue around to, I mean, he'd come f- full circle, and he actually answers their original question by telling them that his authority came from the same authority as John the Baptist. John the Baptist came by way, the way of righteousness, which means that he too, Jesus, came by way of righteousness. He answers their question, and he gets them to condemn themselves. And it gets even better when we get into the next two parables. 